This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a little bit. I just got done with a month in the ICU, so that's been keeping my time busy, but excited to get back behind the mic. We're here at Northwestern. I got Daniel and Lauren here with us and then two new discussants. So I'll I'll let my other team members introduce themselves and tell you what they've been up to. What's up, everybody? It's great to be back online. This is Dan Matthew here. Very excited to be here. You know, it's November. The, the, the temperatures are dropping a little bit, but hey, our spirits are still up there. So that's that's what we like to see. I'm joined by my very good friend and co-host, Lauren Smith. Hi, everyone. Very glad to be here with you all today. Yeah, I can't believe it's November. Yeah, right. Interview season is oh, upon boy. us for, for all of us, which is exciting. I don't know about you, but I've definitely been enjoying the fall weather oh, yeah. and and yeah. apples and mm-hmm. and all that comes Cider. with fall. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's oh, good stuff. It's good. You know, we are very lucky today. We have two very special M4 guests. They are both incredibly talented and have so many wonderful skills going for them. I would love to introduce both of them. We have Zalman and Joy. Zalman and Joy, it is such a pleasure to have both of you here. If you could just introduce yourselves, give us a quick, give us a quick one-liner of, you know, who you are, what we got to know. Uh, a one-liner, yeah, if you yeah, will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hey everyone, my name is Joy. Like I said, I'm an M4 here at Feinberg. I'm applying into internal medicine, so really excited about that. And I'm from like the Western New York area, Canada as well. And I guess a fun fact for me is I recently took up rock climbing, so I'm working on a new skill there. (laughs) I think one of our past discussants was taking up (laughs) rock climbing. Chen, Chen was, wow. yeah. She's the one that got me into Oh, rock. there you go. <laughs> what a classic. Great. Awesome. Well, glad to have you. Hey, everybody. I'm Zalman. Uh, I'm an M4 as well. I'm applying to pediatrics, which I'm really Ooh. happy about. I am from the northern suburbs. Fun fact about me that I can say Halloween just ended. The first time I ever went trick-or-treating in my life was in the fourth grade, and my friends and I dressed up as IRS agents. We dressed up all in suits, <laughs> and we went and audited a bunch of mouths for candy. So that was a great time. <laughs> Zalman, I can guarantee that's probably the scariest costume Absolutely. that anyone Absolutely. <laughs> But bunch of kids dressed up in suits. What is going on? All right. Well, great, great. It's great to have the two of you here. We have a wonderful episode lined up. So Lauren, what do you say we kind of jump in and get things started? Let's do it. All right. So today we have an 18-year-old woman who presents to clinic with acute abdominal pain that began two days ago. Now, obviously, it's not a lot of information to go off of, but Kind of pausing here, I would love to hear your thought process. What are you thinking right now when you hear this person's age and kind of how long this has been going on? Any questions that you'd like to ask? Anything that you'd like to know more of? I mean, several things come to my head just to to start off. But I would love to know if there was anything that happened two days ago that made this Mm. pain come on suddenly. I'd love to know where exactly it's located because abdominal pain could mean kind of anywhere, so I'd love to know exactly what that is. I have other thoughts that are maybe running through my head after that. Yeah, I think the quality of the pain Mm -hmm. is something I'm really interested in. I feel like her age is an interesting Mm -hmm. thing that I'm focusing on. You know, she's pretty young. Common things being common, I feel like I'm thinking of, you know, 
gastro as a potential thing? Like, what are some associated symptoms that maybe would support that? But also other organ systems like gynecologic causes. Yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Those are those are great points. I, you know, I love the way that you thought beyond just the abdominal organs and really thinking about what are some other factors that could be leading to this presentation. I, I want to ask, is there any method that you have to kind of organize your thoughts when it comes to abdominal pain? I know there are a lot of different symptoms and diagnoses. Any Is there anything that you use to kind of keep everything organized in your head? I think as Zalman pointed out, the location of the vein mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. something I want to know right off the bat. Mm-hmm. My schema for abdominal pain is really location-based. Like, which quadrant is it in? Did it start somewhere and move somewhere else? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with that. My my Just like Joy said, my schema is also thinking about it anatomically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can break up the abdomen into your four quadrants, but then particularly you also want to think about maybe slightly above the four quadrants mm-hmm. if you're thinking if there's any, like maybe referred pain, fluoritic pain, anything like that. But you also, for me, it's especially important to think below the four quadrants, and that's especially important for females. So when you think about possible gynecologic causes or urologic causes of abdominal pain. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. Is there any diagnosis or anything that comes to mind that is an immediate must-not-miss diagnosis? Anything that you're thinking, we have to make sure it's not this? I think... Again, given her age and her that she's a female, ectopic pregnancy is something mm-hmm. I would want to rule out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So getting more history about yeah. her you know, sexual activity, whether it's possible that she could be pregnant right now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You could also think about maybe not necessarily a must-not-miss, but you could think about other important things like a ruptured appendix or an appendicitis mm-hmm. that could spread infection throughout the belly and cause a peritonitis that you don't want to miss. If the patient were older, I would think about something like like abdominal aortic aneurysm that is absolutely a must-on mm-hmm. too. Excellent, excellent. You know, I, I love the way you guys broke it down, really focusing on location, but also thinking about other life-threatening etiologies. I think this is a good place to pause and just do a brief teaching point. I think when we're thinking about important diagnostic schemas, one really strong method, like you both mentioned, is using locations. So specifically, when we think of the right upper quadrant, we think of liver and biliary etiologies, right lower quadrant, Zalman, like you mentioned, appendicitis, left lower quadrant, classically diverticulitis, colitis, Left upper quadrant, we think of the spleen, or also colitis can present. And of course, epigastric pain, we think of GERD, gastritis, peptic ulcer disease. And also, like the two of you mentioned, there are certain life-threatening etiologies that we cannot afford to miss in any scenario, like ectopic pregnancy, also vascular etiologies, or any kind of obstruction. And finally, Joy, you know, you you really hit, hit on this with... There are possible other etiologies, especially like gynecologic. Zalman, you also mentioned urologic causes. Really important to be ensuring that we're approaching this patient holistically to ensure we're capturing everything. Great, great, great discussion. Great thoughts. All right, should we move on to the next aliquot? Let's do it. All right, so let's get started on the next aliquot. So this patient recently returned from a vacation in Mexico five days ago. She felt well for two days after returning developed severe stabbing epigastric pain. Diarrhea began the following morning. She endorses feeling fatigue and has had a few episodes of vomiting. No fever or or hematemesis. Maybe some red streaks in her stool, but it's difficult to say. She has no significant past medical history. She did have a scheduled abortion two years ago. No medications or allergies. Her family history is significant for breast cancer in her mother and maternal grandmother, 
and for her social history, no tobacco or alcohol use, and she is monogamous with one male partner. So what jumps out to you from this history? I think the onset, it, the fact that it's an acute onset over a few days is a really important piece of information. So thinking about acute causes of abdominal pain, like I mentioned, I think viral gastro or some kind of gastroenteritis would be higher on my differential. And then aside from thinking about like what is the cause of these symptoms, thinking about like, is there anything we need to do right now? The fact that she said vomiting for a while, I would like to quantify like how much fluid she's lost she's lost. And if there's anything like any symptoms of like lightheadedness or anything like that that would make us want to do something right now. Yeah, for me, there are a couple of things that definitely jump out. First, that this started very recently after she returned from a vacation in Mexico, which gets me thinking about infectious ideologies for her abdominal pain, similar to viral gastroenteritis, but also thinking about other infectious causes. I'm also concerned about the red streaks in her stool. I know she says it's difficult to say, but for me personally, even if somebody thinks that they may have seen some blood in their stool, I'm thinking about what is a process that could be causing blood to be in their stool. So those are two big things that jump out for me right now. Yeah, I like, Joy, how you mentioned not only what do we think might be causing this, but you're also thinking about is the patient stable right now? Is there anything acutely that we need to be concerned about given this history, which is really important when we see patients coming in as we need to know if we have time to think or not. So I think, I think Zalma brought up a really interesting point and it seems like he thinks the, the vacation in Mexico is a signal, not so much noise. And then he also highlighted the red streaks in the stool. I was wondering, Zalma, what if you tie the two together? For sure. So there are a couple of things. There are a couple of things that I think about. So if it was just a vacation in Mexico, maybe without red streaks in her stool, I would think of tech for her specifically. It should cause like a secretory watery diarrhea. But if you're thinking more about bloody stool, then you would then I would think more about EHEC specifically or Shigella as another cause of bloody stool that could be that could be caused by food or water that is not as let's not as sanitary as maybe we might have here in the United States. Awesome. Else that you're worried about? We talked a lot about infectious etiologies of this abdominal pain. Anything else you would want to make sure is on your differential? Yeah, just to keep it broad, I think anytime I bloody stools, I'm always thinking inflammatory bowel disease. And I think, you know, even though this acute onset is initially making me think infection, this could be a flare of previously diagnosed IBD. So I would want to know more about her history, her past diagnoses, if she's ever had symptoms like this before, perhaps in family history of GI illness. That's a really good point. And I would also, you know, if we're still thinking about things that could be going on that we might have to intervene on acutely, again, very highly unlikely, but a severe stabbing abdominal pain with an acute onset, I'm still thinking about AAA. Again, very unlikely in a younger patient who doesn't smoke or has any other cardiovascular risk factors, but who knows? Awesome. All right. You want to get some vitals in an exam? Perfect. All right. 
So on exam, her temperature is 36.6 Celsius. Her blood pressure is 120 over 70. Heart rate of 72. Respiratory rate is 20. And she's satting 97% on room air. On exam, she is alert but anxious. There's no scleral icterus and no oral lesions. No JVD. She has regular rate and rhythm. S1 and S2 are present and no murmurs. Her lungs are clear. Her abdomen is non-distended. She does have tenderness throughout, but no rebound and no hepatomegaly. She does have trace bilateral lower extremity edema. She is calm and moving all extremities spontaneously. So what do we think of the vitals and exam? Is it what you were expecting? It's, I think, impressively non-focal for the most part. She has the abdominal tenderness, which I was expecting. I'm interested in the trace bilateral edema, if that is something that is due to her body habitus or something she's had in the past, or if this is a new finding. Um, Because otherwise, why would it be noted? But otherwise, yeah, it's pretty pretty unremarkable. Also, she's afebrile. Yeah, I agree with those points, Alman. Also, I think another thing that stands out to me, even though the respiratory rate technically is in the normal range, it's on the upper end of normal. And I think anyone who has tachypnea, that makes me a little uncomfortable because that could be a sign of a lot of bad things. But she is anxious, so, you know, it could be due to that. But I would want to keep a close eye on her vital signs. Awesome. So does this change your differential at all? Does this add anything, make anything less likely? Right now, knowing what I know, I wouldn't necessarily change my differential a whole lot from her, from infectious ideology being the most highly likely. Maybe I'm less concerned about a AAA. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't think I'm trying to find details here that would affect anything I'm thinking, but I still feel pretty consistently about what we discussed before. All right. So maybe then we can give you some time to think about what you want, what labs you might want for this patient, any studies. If you saw this patient in the emergency room, what would you do? Definitely a CBC right off the bat to quantify how much blood she's lost. I would do a CMP for sure, like Joy had mentioned earlier, if we're concerned about possible dehydration. I want to know the status of that. If we're concerned about similarly like a secretory diarrhea, we want to have some kind of quantification of that. And I also would love to get liver enzymes to determine if there is any etiology that's affecting her liver that can uh, be presenting in this way. What are you expecting to see on both those studies initially? If she's dehydrated, I would expect to see a higher sodium. I would expect to see a lower bicarb, and I would be very interested in, again, her liver enzymes and liver function to see if there's anything that's affecting her liver. I'm seeing this patient on the wards. I, I'm ordering that initial CBC and CMP, and I'm expecting it to be very normal. So it would actually be surprising to me if this things were to come back abnormal with how we're kind of framing this. Like if this is just a traveler's diarrhea or infectious diarrhea, you're not really going to see much on either CBC or CMP. So we'll see what, what these initial studies show. Is there anything else that you want besides 
you know, labs from her blood, anything, any studies, anything. I think stool studies would be appropriate here. You know, she's complaining of diarrhea. She has possible blood in there. So seeing if there's any infectious thing that grows from her stool. I would also love to get a urine pregnancy test as she's admitted into the hospital to make sure that we determine, first of all, whether or not she's pregnant, and then also how that will affect our management moving forward. Awesome. All right. Should we see the results of some of our tests? All right. Well, you know what? You guys asked, and I've got some answers for you, all right? Mm -hmm. So we have some labs. Here we go. White blood cell count, 6.9. Hemoglobin, 9.2. Platelet, 19K. Sodium, 139. Potassium, 5.1. Chloride, 106. Uh, BUN, 36. Creatinine, 4.2. I've also got some liver enzymes for you. AST, 59. ALT, 25. ALKFOS, 87. Total bilirubin, 2.7, with a direct component of 0.5. We have an albumin of 3.6, and we also did some imaging. You know, I just thought it might be helpful. We have a CT abdomen and pelvis that shows Severe colitis. A lot of labs, a lot of numbers. What stands out to the two of you? Anything in particular makes you scratch your head because it's abnormal or perhaps any normal values that also leave you just a lot of head scratching? What, what, what are you thinking? I think the T belly definitely stands out to me most. Mm. I think there's like a pretty, that I feel like that points to a lot of specific and severe issues that could be going on. So yeah, out of those labs, I'm looking mostly at the T-Billy. I'm seeing a profound thrombocytopenia, mm. particularly for somebody who we know has no prior medical history, <laughs> and also a creatinine of 4.2, which is especially high and remarkable, and a BUN mm -hmm. as well that's high in, in conjunction with the high total bill like Joy. The hemoglobin being at 9.2 is lower than I would expect, though... I'm wondering if what her, I'm wondering what her baseline hemoglobin is, if she's currently menstruating, if there's anything that could be affecting that as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously the severe colitis is not expected. Excellent. Excellent. Great points. Anything about this that makes you wonder, huh, this is kind of, what do you think about the white blood cell count? It's a 6.9. Is that, how does that affect anything? If, if at all. I mean, it's reassuring that. She doesn't have a leukocytosis, but I think given everything else, that still doesn't take off infection off my differential. Mm -hmm. um, I think if it was elevated, like profoundly elevated, that would be really helpful. But the fact that it's within the normal range, I don't think changes my differential a whole lot because I still think infection is possible. Awesome. Great. You know, Joy Zalman, you guys both make some excellent points. Maybe this might be a good point just to kind of pause and summarize what we know so far in terms of the patient's history and physical exam findings. Would either of you be willing to kind of take a stab at first and then obviously the other person can popcorn and chime in? Sure. So here we have an 18-year-old female. She is presenting with acute onset abdominal pain with associated diarrhea, emesis, and possible blood in the stool. Exam is largely non-focal. Vitals are pretty stable, and lab findings most significant for profound thrombocytopenia, elevated creatinine, BUN, 
and total bilirubin, as well as imaging indicative of severe colitis. Phenomenal. Excellent work, team. Great job. You know, I just want to highlight a couple of things that both of you mentioned. Zalman, like you mentioned, the BUN to creatinine ratio is quite high. Creatinine is 4.2. We don't have the baseline for this patient, but something to be aware of. The hemoglobin, 9.2. Important to know baseline hemoglobin, but still something that we want to keep our eyes out for. And also, Joy, you mentioned the total bilirubin being elevated as something that, you know, you wanted to keep an eye out on. I think just as a quick learning point, something that is helpful to keep in mind is the difference between conjugated versus unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. As, as we know, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia often refers to a decreased intrahepatic excretion of bilirubin. We classically think of any kind of biliary tract obstruction versus in unconjugated, we're thinking of an excess production of bilirubin through either a hemolytic anemia or some kind of impaired conjugation. You know, classically uh, on step, we think of things like Krigler-Najjar or Gilbert syndrome, UDP glucuronosyl transferase, right? Just classic buzzwords. But also there are a lot of different etiologies, liver disease, drugs. Um, so I love your thought process. I think we're heading down the right track. For this patient with a T-bili of 2.7 and 0.5 direct bilirubin, are you leaning towards one type of hyperbilirubinemia versus the other? I think this would support a indirect. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Great, great, great points. Is there anything else that you would like to know? Any other imaging or lab values or anything that you think might be helpful information? I would like to actually get a UA on her. Mm. I think as you we were talking about the bilirubin and the causes of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia and one being hemolysis, I think one thing that's coming into my head that's tying together a few different pieces is like an HUS type picture, which I know can cause hemolysis. And with her elevated creatinine, there's some possible kidney dysfunction happening. So I, I would like to see what her urine shows. I, I completely agree with that. You also have the thrombocytopenia, which you could see in an HUS type of picture as well. I would also love to know if we're thinking along those lines, just to go back to the patient and ask her, what kinds of things were you eating in Mexico? What kinds of things were you doing in Mexico? That And see if we can get a little bit more of a history from her with regards to those things. And again, wanted to confirm whether or not she's pregnant. You know, Joey Zalman, these are some excellent, excellent points. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Lauren. What do you think? Do you think we can get, 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 any, get any answers, get some help with this? <laughs> yeah, I think we can definitely see what our next studies are. I do want to ask, though, you're thinking about HUS. What would you expect a patient to look like or present with? Possibly some dark urine or blood in the urine. And overall, just feeling really crummy. I mean, she's, she's anxious. I know we said on exam, but, you know, she's reported her fatigue. That would kind of correlate with what I would expect in an HUS type of picture for sure. I think this initial set of labs was very juicy. And I, I was trying to think of how to simplify it as much as I, I could. So I, I read this as she has a bicytopenia. I'm going to assume a normal baseline creatinine. So a severe AKI and an indirect predominant hyperbilirubinemia. You synthesize those together and that's starting to paint a, a picture of the path we're heading down, which I think you guys have kind of highlighted already. We've thrown around hemolysis as a possible sequelae or etiology contributing to her picture. How are you guys going to confirm that laboratory-wise? 
I would love to get like a peripheral blood smear as well to see to see the to see the blood cells under microscope, see if we're seeing any schistocytes or or anything else, any any abnormal red blood cell shapes. Awesome. And anything in particular if we're concerned about hemolysis? Any specific labs that can help you with that? An LDH and a haptoglobin. Reticulocyte count. Awesome. So we might have a couple of those for you. <laughs> Take it away, Dan. All right. So we have here your analysis. We've got three plus blood in the urine, two plus protein. We have a 24-hour protein of 1.2 grams. The haptoglobin is low. We have a reticulocyte count of 4.5%. LDH of 465. And we also did an infectious diarrhea workup. I know you guys had talked about it a little bit, so I thought, hey, why not? Let's, let's throw that in there for you. It is negative. We also have an image of a blood smear here. For our listeners at home, do you think you could kind of walk us through what you're looking at? I mean, what, what, what are we seeing here? I'm seeing some red. I'm seeing some white. I don't know. Well, man, you look very <laughs> concerned about this blood smear. <laughs> what's, uh, what's going on here? I think the arrows could be pointing to some schistocytes. Mm. Yeah, we've got a nice arrow sign here. <laughs> Love the arrows. <laughs> the other thing that I'm noting, aside from the arrows, like Joy had mentioned, is the absence of platelets on the on the peripheral blood smear, which is consistent with her thrombocytopenia. Great hiccup, though. Like, good, good. Yeah, sometimes I think when you see the arrow sign in particular or you see something so scary like schistocytes, it's easy to see that and just move on and not not look at the rest. So I think, yeah, the absence or almost absence of platelets here is great. Very nice. So when with these labs, low haptoglobin, elevated retic count, elevated LDH, what changes in your mind? How does this impact your thought process, your differential? There were a couple of diagnoses that were thrown out. I know you were asking some questions about hemolysis. What, what does this make you think of? Or what questions do you have? Or what, what else would you like to know? I mean, a hemolytic anemia with a profound thrombocytopenia is almost textbook for HUS. So mm. I'm definitely thinking about that. Mm. I'm still interested in the severe colitis that was noted mm. on the CTAP. And it does make me wonder about the inflammatory bowel disease, like Joy had mentioned earlier. But that's kind of, for me, throwing a wrinkle, and I'm 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 a little puzzled by that personally. Yeah, I wonder if the colitis was like if it's related to her presenting symptoms, or just something underlying. That's more of more like noise rather than signal here. Mm. But yeah, I agree with this UA with blood and protein, and labs consistent with hemolytic anemia i think this just further reinforces hus in my mind mm -hmm. excellent excellent when we're thinking about hemolytic anemia i think you bring up a great point saying hemolytic uremic syndrome is one of the major causes that we often think of with any kind of hemolytic anemia is there anything else that you may think could cause a hemolytic anemia in in this patient I mean, she's relatively young, so I think immune causes, autoimmune diseases can present more commonly earlier in life. Yeah. I also think we have enough data at this point to kind of categorize this clinical picture more. I'm just going to, this is more of a read my mind question, but if I told you a patient has anemia, thrombocytopenia, 
schistocytes and an indirect billy, what kind of picture does that paint? We might not be reading your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know you, you've already thought about this, but you're, you're concerned about HUS, but HUS falls under a, a more broad bracket of diseases, the TMAs, like thrombed. Oh. The, oh my God, I can't even say it. We'll go with TMAs. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're, you know, so it sounds like what we're all kind of thinking is something is causing hemolysis for this patient. We're not sure exactly what might be leading to it, but hey, the haptoglobin, reticulocyte, LDH, UA, Everything is pointing to something causing this patient to have hemolysis as well as a very, very low platelet count like, like we both talked about. Okay, excellent. Maybe any other labs you're interested in or any, anything else that we might be interested in hearing more about? If not, that's also totally fine. We do have a bit more information that we're also happy to go through just to see if it, you know, it, there are any changes to your thought process. I'm going to push you guys. What are some other TMAs and how would you rule them in or rule them out? I'm thinking about like a TTP as under that under that umbrella of pathology. I would expect a person like that to be to again appear a lot sicker than 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 this patient is, just right off the bat. Possibly, if I'm remembering right, possibly some jaundice or other other some other like a, like liver symptoms that you could expect to see there. If I'm remembering correctly, yeah. Good. Now, with TTP, you met, we mentioned TTP. What what kind of symptoms would you expect, or what might you expect to see, or what kind of labs might you expect to see for a patient with TTP? Are they similar to HUS? Are there any overlaps? Any differences? I think clinically, patients with TTP are more likely altered mm. compared mm -hmm. to HUS. If I'm remembering that yeah. correctly. Mm -hmm. You'd also see the purpura, I mean, which is which is also part of the name. We, I don't think we saw any skin changes particularly mm -hmm. on her, mm -hmm. but you would def you would definitely expect to see that. Yeah, yeah. Any particular lab abnormalities that we might see between TDP and HUS? There's one that I don't remember. Is it the Adam TS thirteen? Yeah, the Adam TS thirteen. It's very interesting, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, it's an interesting point, Joy. I, I, yeah, good. So with Adam TS13, do we, we see abnormalities with that and you're thinking perhaps in TTP, we might want to take a look at an Adam's TS13. Yeah, I think that would be a good lab to get at this point. Okay, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds good. Let me, let me ask you this. In terms of comparing hemolytic uremic syndrome and thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, we talk about two things. We talked about the thrombocytopenia, obviously, and the anemia. What are some of the differences between these two? We mentioned the presence of Adam TS13, specifically with TTP. Is there anything, any kind of symptoms that we may see more presenting with TTP versus HUS? Again, I mentioned like the alter mental status. Yes. yes. Is fever also more common with TTP? Right, right. Yeah. So I think this is a great place to pause and actually do a, a quick teaching point as well. When we think about HUS, the classic triad, both of you mentioned this, thrombocytopenia, anemia, and renal involvement. In this patient, we have a, a pretty profound acute kidney injury. And for thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, we have, it's called like the pentad. We have also the thrombocytopenia, the anemia, the renal involvement. 
And we also have fever and roughly, I think around 60% of patients may present with CNS symptoms as well. But also, like you both noted, there is some overlap, but there are also a few differences that might help us tease the two apart. And to make things a little bit more confusing, only 30 or 30% of patients who have HUS can also have CNS involvement in fever. And 60% of patients who have TTP may not have the full pentad. <laughs> so as we mentioned, using those laboratory tests that we have specifically for TTP can help us to rule in and out. Fantastic work. You guys are crushing it. So there are a couple of things you wanted to get, maybe an Adam TS-13 maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Why not? Why not? Let's, because you asked, let's, let's, let's get that. Let's, let's get it done. All right, so we have here an Adam TS-13 of 53%. We have a shigatoxin assay that is negative. And we have a creatinine jump, 4.2 to 6 today. And the complement C3-C4 is normal. So just for, just for a bit of context, typically in thrombotic thrombocytic purpura, would you expect Adam TS to be normal, high, low? I think high. Mm -hmm. So, so well, this is, a, this is a good learning point. Actually, classically with TTP, we would expect the Adam TS percent to be a bit lower. Usually, we see it around what I was reading is around five percent or less than five percent is what we see is classically associated with TTP. So, for this patient with a percent of around fifty-three percent, it's actually in in the within the normal range. Does that? Does that change anything between TTP, HUS, but also shigatoxins negative? What, what are you thinking? So that for me would make TTP less likely mm -hmm. if the Adam TS-13 is in a normal range. The fact that the shigatoxin is negative makes it for me just less likely that it could be due to EHEC but not necessarily that it is not HUS because first everything else, every other lab that we have is kind of fitting that picture, but then also there can be other causes of HUS as well. Very out, very open-minded thinking, Zalvin. That's, it's very great to hear. Good, good. Just as an aside, I also think it's helpful to pathophysiologically think of Adam's TS-13 for TTP. So it's usually the absence of this being around. And what does it do? It cleaves von Willebrand's factor into the monomers. So without it, we have really big, chunky von Willebrand's hanging around. And that's what kind of serves as the nidus to lead to the TMA forming and causing the, the shearing of the RBCs, which just creates this cascade, right? So I think it's helpful to think about it in that sense when you see a low value, you know we have larger von Willebrand's hanging around. That's helpful. All right. So based on what we know, it sounds like we're kind of debating between TTP and HUS. And maybe based on some of these findings, we're leaning a bit more towards HUS, but unclear because the shigatoxin assay is negative. What do you think we should do in terms of our plan, in terms of next steps moving forward? Do we discharge this patient and say, you know what, it's, it's, it's all right. Everything will be fine. Just send them home. And he, Lots of smiles. Right, 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 right. Maybe right. not the best option. I would not, I would not do that. Okay. Okay. Good. So we are off to a good start. Also, are we continuing diagnosis or are we treating it? That's a decision you're going to have to make. I think I, for me, I, there's enough evidence to support HUS that I would have a low threshold to start treating. Yeah, I agree. Now. 
I think that just the creatinine bump for me is this woman's kidneys are in trouble and we need to do something emergently. Absolutely. What are we going to do? We could move towards one of the things I'm thinking about. We can move toward acute dialysis if we think that she's she has worsening uremia and that would be an indication for acute dialysis. Otherwise, I would think about kind of the opposite, really, which is to start fluids on her and go pretty aggressive with fluids. And then for thinking in the DMA category, TTP less likely now HUS, what kind of interruptions are we going to invoke? here to kind of address that. So like dialysis, fluids are all temporizing. Start addressing the cause. If we're thinking it's HUS, it's also helpful to think of what drives HUS. That really what the So if we're thinking about the formation of small blood clots throughout the body, would we start some kind of blood thinning medication like a heparin to help break up the clots? Also, I... I think something I remember is whenever we have, or sometimes when we have like renal involvement, like steroids is a treatment for a lot of things. And I can't quite remember if that's within the treatment for HUS though. But I think certainly if it's something is immunologically driven, steroids always play a role, right? I think this patient in particular is quickly worse. Her kidneys, like I said, are in trouble. Mm-hmm. We got to, there is going to take time. got to do something more urgently that will have a quicker effect. So one of the points both of you mentioned is perhaps there's some kind of immunological component. There's something driving this hemolysis that's happening. Is there anything in your minds that may help expedite the recovery, the, re- the removal perhaps of this immunoglobulin, this, this, whatever might be causing this. Like a plasmapheresis type of picture? Yeah. yeah, yeah, a plasma, something to try to, all right, let's move this, this antibody, whatever might be causing them all. So let's get it out of the way so that we can help our patient recover as quickly as possible. Excellent, great, great points. It's so interesting. The, the time frame of, of how these events proceed can really help dictate what our next steps might be. I think these are all great thoughts and trying to figure out what we can do for our patient now is an incredibly important step. And I'm really glad you guys are thinking in that direction. And I want to push you one more time here. So Zalman, you mentioned this feels, smells like HUS to you and not TTP, but we're a little bit puzzled by the negative shigatoxin assay, but everything else really screams HUS. You mentioned, you know, maybe it's another type of HUS, can you think of any other causes that could could present like this? Other causes of HUS? That one's a little that one's a little tougher in coming to mind. I would again think about anything that's causing an injury to the microvasculature and then like thinking about thinking about what those things could be, but it's like, it's, it's difficult and coming to mind right now. I don't know if you're referring to like Shiga-like toxins that could be from other organisms. I think what's important here is that you picked up that there are different causes of, so you're not letting the Shiga toxin assay say, okay, it was negative. It's very sensitive. It's not HUS. The Shiga toxin assay from what I know would also pick up on like Shiga-like toxin. So 
I think from this we can say it's not Shigella or Ehec driving this. Everything else is still pointing to HUS. I know there are some other causes of HUS. I think that's the that's the endpoint you need to reach because then you're saying let's treat this person. Then you're going to call your nephrology friends to kind of <laughs> figure this out. What is actually driving this? And but what it what is important is you recognize this pattern. You got to you got to it to a point where you felt comfortable starting treatment for it. And that's ultimately what you needed to do for this patient. The rest can be worked out. All right. So I think we have our, our final diagnosis then, huh? That you all want to land on. Think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, okay. So we're going to go with HUS with question mark etiology. I'm okay with that for now. Okay. All <laughs> right. Now. All right. Let's see what happens. We'll get this patient some plasmapheresis. All right. So the final diagnosis for this patient is atypical HUS. She was started on plasmapheresis and eculizumab and improved. So what the heck is happening here? <laughs> let's talk about it. So I definitely learned a lot about um atypical HUS and other causes of HUS in preparing for this. So first of all, you all did great thinking about your differential, thinking about HUS versus TTP. I was very impressed that you came to the point of saying this really sounds like HUS, even though the sugar toxin is negative. So great work there. So let's chat about HUS. So we used to think about HUS as typical and atypical. And so typical was thinking about sugar toxin and atypical was like not having any diarrhea, another cause of HUS. But more recently, we have described it as hereditary HUS and acquired HUS. So this patient here has hereditary HUS. So this is associated with mutations among multiple genes that encode proteins involved in the alternate complement pathway. So you noticed we got some complement tests. We got a C3 and C4 that were both normal on this patient. It can also be related to mutations in the coagulation pathway and also an inborn error of metabolism at Zalman, our future pediatrician, that creates a functional B12 deficiency. But that's typically in like infants. So not really consistent with this, this patient. But mutations in some of these genes can then predispose individuals to developing HUS. And interestingly, environmental triggers such as an infection, most commonly an upper respiratory infection, but also like a GI illness can lead to HUS. So if we're thinking about hereditary HUS specifically, 30% of the time it's associated with malfunctions in the CFH gene, which is a gene that affects the production of blood, blood protein factor H, which is a regulatory component of the complement system. And now, so we did get some complement levels on this patient. But interestingly, these mutations are more of a functional problem with these. So you can still have normal C3, C4 numbers. So you really need to do some genetic testing for these patients. Okay, so again, thinking about typical and atypical HUS or hereditary versus acquired, 
Also, super, super important to be thinking about pregnancy, Zalman. I love how you were thinking about that because pregnancy itself can just cause HUS, which is kind of crazy. So, all right. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about treatment of complement-mediated HUS? Absolutely. You know, I I just want to echo everything that Lauren said. Atypical or hereditary HUS isn't something that's classically taught in in medical school. And the fact that the two of you went to HUS and thought, huh, this doesn't feel like the classic. It could be something else. Just excellent work. The two of you have done done a great job. Let's go over treatment. So we talk about autoantibodies. We mentioned that perhaps in a young woman, perhaps there is some kind of immunological component to this. And you mentioned plasmapheresis. The goal is to remove any autoantibodies that may be affecting certain factors causing the hemolysis that we see for this patient. So plasmapheresis, excellent component. We also talk about steroids. Given the the immunological response, perhaps it's a good move to decrease that response. Immunosuppression can be helpful with prednisone and other agents. And finally, there's this interesting new drug that's been approved by the FDA called eculizumab. I'm just going to briefly go over it just for, for all of our edification. This is a humanized anti-C5 monoclonal antibody. Now, this is specifically approved for complement-related HUS or, or hereditary HUS. And the way that it works is it blocks the complement activation. And it's actually recommended first line for patients with HUS. It was approved in 2011. There is a, a interesting caveat, though. For 30 milliliters of eculizumab, the cost is a hefty $7,000, around $7,000. So it can be discontinued, but it's very individualized. There's a lot of follow-up that's required, and it's really important to make sure that patients have favorable response and are improving, but definitely on the pricey side, so just something to consider. But excellent work. Let's let's see what happens. I wonder if there's any final concluding words that we have. Oh, I might be able to help with that. <laughs> so in conclusion, a couple months pass. C3 and C4 are still normal. Factors B, H, I, and H autoantibody were also normal. She did get a genetic panel that revealed a heterozygous deletion of CFHR3 and CFHR1. So as Dan mentioned, eculizumab is very, very expensive. So this patient did decide to go off of She did have weekly labs checked to follow up with her renal function, which did remain normal. And interestingly, there's not a ton of guidelines and information to help physicians decide when and how to have patients come off of eculizumab. Though we do know it's going to be very important to follow up with with the renal function because they do have, depending on which genetic mutations they have, they have a varying likelihood of relapsing and getting HUS again. So some key points, if we step back and think about this case a little bit more broadly. So approaching abdominal pain, as you both mentioned, Zalman and Joy, you want to have a system. Location is a great starting point for that. And then thinking about HUS and TTP. So for HUS, we have the classic triad of the microangiopathic hemolytic anemia or MAHA, thrombocytopenia, and AKI. TTP, we've got MAHA, thrombocytopenia, AKI, and then also fever and CNS involvement. 
And then thinking again one last time about hereditary HUS, we know there's a strong genetic component. So get those labs, check complement, do the genetic testing. First-line antibody treatments are available, and patients need to have very close follow-up because they're at risk of relapse. All right. You made it through the cave. Great work. <laughs> awesome job. How do you both feel? Yeah. I think we did a pretty good job. Yeah. I feel like we mentioned HUS, like, just with the initial set of labs. So proud of us for that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You know, just hearing the way you logically think through this, I think is so helpful for all of us just to figure out, okay, when we are approached with an issue that may not be readily apparent what the answer is, how can we have a system to help us logically approach it in a way that we're being comprehensive and ensuring that we're coming to ideally the right conclusion with the help of our colleagues? Just an excellent work, the two of you. I'm so glad I was able to be here and listen in on this. And I, I just want to also congratulate you guys. One you used imperfect information and came to a perfect diagnosis. So that's the art of medicine, right? It's we, We've already talked about it. Say this was TTP. It's exceedingly rare to actually get that pentad. We're never going to get that textbook diagnosis. So I think you guys did a fantastic job at keeping an open-ended differential throughout, but also narrowing as we did. You really pushed yourselves to go down the path that was most likely. And I think that's going to serve you well. So it was, it was really cool to listen to both of you reason out loud from, from behind the mic over here. And I hope you guys had fun. Absolutely. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Great to have you here. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.